0: Let's begin with a question that sort of springboards off the message from this morning. It says this, "Uh, Sometimes when I read or study my Bible, I am doing it because I know it's the right thing to do, but it's not that I have some kind of excited feeling about doing it. I'm wondering if that's a sign or an, an indication that I don't desire or crave the Word. Very, very good question because, as we saw this morning, it's a very intense word that Peter uses there in 1 Peter 2 2. Crave, the word we went to the Psalm 119 about delighting. So the question is well, I don't always have this, you know, euphoria or this certain feeling or whatever uh, when I'm reading my Bible or I'm studying it. I'm doing it because I know it's right, it's good for me, etc. Is that a a sign or indication I don't desire or crave the word? And I would say, absolutely not. In fact, it can be the opposite. And what I mean is, uh, obviously it is easy for any of us or all of us to do things that we feel like doing, things that we want to do. Uh, But when we do things that when the feeling maybe isn't present... Uh, we do things anyway that we know are right, know are good. Uh, that may show even a deeper level of devotion to something, because you don't just wait to feel like doing it. You know, you could you could multiply illustrations of this. You know, if you're married in your in your marriage, be honest. You don't always feel like serving your spouse. So do you just not do it if you don't feel like it? Well if that's the way you operate your marriage, I feel sorry for your spouse because uh, you serve because you have taken up the cross to follow Jesus, and he says you die to self daily. So sometimes self says, I want to be pampered. I just want my way. I don't feel like doing this or whatever. Uh, So that doesn't mean, you know, in the marriage, it doesn't mean that uh, you don't love your spouse. Actually, it can be a, Higher, deeper, whatever term you want to use, level of love because you say, I love this person and I will serve even when maybe I want to be selfish and self centered. Uh, So, in the same way, when it comes to reading the Word and studying the Word, we don't just wait for some certain feeling of euphoria or some excitement. Certainly, there are times like that where you're excited to get into the Bible and you want to look to see what God has to say, but uh, since Peter uses the analogy of craving spiritual milk so that we can grow, bring that analogy right over. There are, you know, Every time you have a meal, you don't just feel like, man, this is the best meal I've ever had in my life. You know, This is just titillating to my taste buds and that kind of thing. You eat because you know you, you need to be healthy. And so, and maybe there are even times where whatever is going on, you don't, you don't feel like eating because you don't have much of an appetite. But you say, this would be good for me to eat. You know, especially if you're very. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times for fasting. Certainly, there are. But there are other times where maybe uh, you're going through something, and you know, you've kind of lost your appetite. But it would be the best thing in the world for you to eat and eat in a healthy way, just because of what that can do for you. So, take that same thing over into the spiritual realm. Um, Every time you go to read your Bible or study your Bible, don't expect certain, some certain, uh, you know, some certain uh, experience, if you will. Uh, just you you know that it's it's what is good for your your spiritual health and so that can actually be an indication of desiring the word even when maybe again whatever term you want to use the feeling isn't there the emotion isn't there uh, you're not being driven by that but there's a deeper recognition of the value of the word in your life so you You go ahead and and plunge into it. So no, um, I I appreciate someone asking that question because it would be unfortunate if um, you know if the impression was given this morning or the impression people left here thinking, well, you know, if I'm just not always this passionate person and I have a certain again experience that there's I'm, I'm guilty. In fact, I talked to the lady after the service this morning. She was very complimentary and very gracious. Thank you, Pastor Brian. That was just really helpful, encouraging. She said, you know, just made me feel guilty. And then she stopped. And she said, no, that's not what I want to say. That doesn't really, uh, it's not that I feel guilty. I was challenged by it. It's a good challenge. And so I appreciate Even her catching herself and that, like, what good does that do just to feel guilty? I don't, you know, desire the word as much as I do. No, it was just a, a challenge to our hearts. And um, so thank you for this question, There for clarification. All right, next question is back in Genesis 37. Uh, We can turn to it. Don't necessarily have to. I think most would be familiar with the story. But in Genesis 37, you have uh, the beginning of what is often known in the book of uh, of Genesis, the Joseph narrative, where you have basically the rest of the book, is about Joseph, beginning in Genesis 37. Some people think, well, not really, because you have chapter 38, Judah and Tamar, and it seems like sort of a, an awkwardly inserted story in the middle of, or, or as you've begun the Joseph narratives, but actually my opinion is that the Judah and Tamar story, though it certainly stands on its own and has its own lessons, is still part of the Joseph narrative because it is quite a contrast in Genesis 37 to how when Joseph was solicited uh, by uh, the, the wife of Potiphar that he refused. But on the other hand, Judah, he wasn't the one who was solicited. He did the soliciting of someone he thought was a prostitute. And so you have a real contrast that the writer of Genesis, the Spirit of God, puts between Joseph and Judah. And that's really amazing when you think about it because Judah, I mean... Judah, the one who is the father of the tribes of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe. The kings eventually came out of that tribe, Judah, being the land where Jerusalem is. So it's really a, a stark and shocking contrast. Um, even though you start in Genesis 37 with Joseph, you sort of almost have a break, Judah and Tamar. And then it's resumed again in Genesis 39 where where Joseph is a slave in Egypt and where he is solicited. I think I may have said that was 37, but it's actually chapter 39. Chapter 37 is where it begins where he has his dreams and you may remember in chapter 37 Joseph has the or, I'm sorry. Yeah, Joseph has these dreams about the sun, moon and the stars bowing down to him and he he shares this with his family and his brothers hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. And then when he told his dreams, they hated him even more. And, of course, uh, Jacob probably unwisely added to all this by the coat of many colors, the favoritism. Maybe even some would suggest that Joseph inadvertently added to it by being just a young man who, who uh, maybe just didn't exercise wisdom in sharing what he shared. Nothing wrong with what he shares. It was actually a dream that God had given him of where he would eventually be. But, you know, you could maybe... Uh, make the point or at least raise the question should he have shared that that's we're not told Uh, and whenever scripture doesn't definitively say something you can't land definitively there but uh, he does share it maybe it would have been wiser just to keep it to himself but anyway he shares the dreams and it adds to the consternation and all of that and so here's the question in genesis 37 when joseph dreams about the sun moon and 11 stars bowing down to him who is referred to who is referred to as joseph's mother since she died giving birth to Benjamin. And, of course, this goes back to the story of Jacob. You remember his two wives where he worked for one seven years, and then he was deceived by his father-in-law, had to work for the other, etc. And so I think the simple answer is that even though she wasn't his blood mother or natural mother, then it would have been basically his aunt who became his mother. So I think it's pretty straightforward in the story that that's who is being referred to. Um, So... Uh, not his birth mother or natural mother, um, not Rachel, but Leah, his his uh, technically his aunt, who was, because of the uh, marriage of two sisters, uh, it was his mom in that sense. All right, next question says this, and we're going to spend a little more time on this one because it's a really important one, and so we'll turn, need to turn to several passages. But it says this, is the church the bride of Christ, as referenced in Ephesians five twenty-two to thirty-two, or does the bride also include Old Testament saints and Millennial saints and Tribulation saints? And I believe the answer to that question is this: that the church is compo- the church as the bride of Christ only involves church saints, and that would include saints from the day of Pentecost to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. That's the church, the bride of Christ. Now, let me explain why I believe that and defend that. Uh, First of all, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as as I said, we're going to look at several passages for this question because it's such an important one to understand. Uh, Basically, and I don't think this is an overstatement the this question or where you land on it not just this question but this issue really is is the huge division and i don't necessarily use that term in a negative way division like there's acrimony but division in the body of christ between dispensational theology and covenant theology now let's let me give some definition of terms um uh, when it comes to these terms, I'm going to make this somewhat simplistic, but there are basically two theological systems in Christianity today. I'm talking about in conservative Christianity, those that believe the Bible, take the Bible seriously, etc. There is, uh, and, and neither of the terms is, is really a very good term, but it's just, these are the terms we have, okay? So it's the terms covenant theology and dispensational theology. And the reason they aren't really the best terms is because um, dispensational theology has a lot of connotations that I'm not sure everyone who is in this camp would even want to be associated with or identified with. For example, I often have people ask me, Brian, are you dispensational in your theology? And my response always is a question, and that is, what do you mean by that? Let me tell you what I believe, then you can put me in whatever camp you want to put me in but I don't like the label because I don't know what people are thinking of when they say that when they say you know are you dispensational well it depends because there are a lot of flavors if you will of dispensationalism if you go back to the original sort of C.I. Schofield dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism and there's just so um, but that is the term that sort of identifies one camp Uh, the other camp is covenant theology And uh, it's, it's also a little bit of an unfortunate term because, and I think this is very accurate and fair to say, this is not meaning to be derogatory, but the fact of the matter is that even though covenant theology has that name, dispensational theology takes the covenants far more seriously than covenant theology. Covenant theology is not so named because of the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant, uh, etc it's called that because of covenants that are and, and i want to be careful with my wording but supposedly in the bible the covenant with a, a uh, with adam the covenant of salvation or the covenant of redemption it's sort of theological terms rather than actual covenants you can go to in the bible as i said abrahamic covenant davidic covenant new covenant Uh, The the dispensational camp takes those covenants, in my opinion, more seriously. The Abrahamic covenant, especially uh, the Davidic covenant, that David will have an ancestor sit on his throne, not on a heavenly throne. So a dispensational view would say this. Um, Now when it comes, a dispensational view would say this, that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled literally on planet Earth, a descendant from David, namely Jesus the Messiah, will sit on David's throne. That will happen. Those in covenant theology would deny that. They would say, no, Jesus will sit on a throne, yes, but it won't be. If you want to call it David's throne, that's okay, but it's a heavenly throne, not an earthly throne. So covenant theology would deny a future literal millennial kingdom. Dispensationalism would affirm that. Now, here's another thing that makes all of this very complicated. Covenant theology is often called, a synonym for covenant theology is often reformed theology. Now, that's also unfortunate because it implies that those in the dispensational camp aren't reformed in their theology. When the fact of the matter is, every dispensationalist I know is reformed in his theology in every area theology proper, Christology, soteriology pneumatology, homardiology, but is not reformed in two areas, ecclesiology, that's the church, and eschatology, that's end times. All right? So, reformed theology, even though that's known as a synonym for covenant theology, it's not that dispensationalists aren't reformed in their theology, because they are. It's just they don't believe the reformer's view of the church because... Uh, The reformer's view of the church is basically that the church is just a continuation of Israel, not a distinct entity. And, of course, if that's your view, then your view of end times is going to look way different. Because if we are Israel, for one thing, if you believe in a literal tribulation, and many in this camp, covenant reform, don't. But if you believe in a literal, literal tribulation, it's clear from Scripture that Israel is going through it. Which means if we are Israel, we're going through it. But if we're not Israel, then there's no reason that the church will go through it. So again, let me—I know it would be almost easier to illustrate this on a whiteboard or something. So you've got two camps: dispensational theology, covenant theology, often called reform theology, which could imply this camp has is not reformed in their theology, which isn't really true, but that's just what it is. So basically, these two camps agree on. Again, theology proper, that's the theology of God. Christology, soteriology, angelology, homardiology, pneumatology, just go down the line, all these theologies, but when it comes to ecclesiology, that's the theology of the church, there's a big difference. And then when it comes to eschatology, that's the theology of end times, there's a big difference. So that's what Christianity is divided into today, those two camps. And I'm sure that everyone in this room has friends, family members, etc., who are reformed in their theology, covenant theology, believe God is done with Israel. And then there are those who believe God is not done with Israel, uh, that God still has a future plan for Israel. That would be over here on this camp. So all that is sort of background. Let's come back to this question. Is the church... The Bride of Christ is referenced in Ephesians 5. Or does the Bride also include Old Testament saints, Millennial saints, and Tribulation saints? So, my conviction is, my belief is that the church is a distinct entity from Israel. And the church is the Bride of Christ. And the church began in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the church will continue until 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Now that passage says the dead in Christ will rise first. Tuck this little thought away. Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, Israel is never, ever described as being in Christ. Never. And yet that is Paul's favorite way to describe the church. 132 times in his letters, Paul says, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ. That is his favorite way to describe believers. But Old Testament saints are never described as being in Christ. So I believe there is a distinction 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, to, or verse 12 says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so is Christ. So Christ has a body, not his fleshly body, which he. Came to be during the incarnation, but he has a body. It's the church. How do you get into the body of Christ? The next verse tells us by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So the way we get into the body of Christ is to be placed into the body of Christ by the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, if that's the case, then we just have to find out, when did this start? Well, again, we don't have to guess, because in Acts 1, Jesus said it was still future. He told the disciples to wait, to tarry, until the, baptized, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit comes, and His baptizing work begins, His filling work begins. Acts 1, it is still future. In Acts 11... When Peter is called on the carpet for going to the Gentiles and taking the gospel to them, he says, listen, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, how could I resist God? You know, I I had to go to the Gentiles. How, How could I resist God? And when I gave them the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them, the Gentiles, just as he did on us, key phrase, Acts 11, 15, just as he did on us at the beginning So Peter points back to the coming of the Holy Spirit as the beginning. So in Acts 1, it's still future. In Acts 11, it's past. The only event between Acts 1 and Acts 11 that fits that is Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and he baptized those believers into the church, the body of Christ. That was the start of the church. That was the start of the body of Christ and that will run until the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. Now, there are parallels with the Old Testament saints because they are called the wife of Yahweh, Old Testament saints, but we are called the bride of Christ. So obviously there's some parallelism, but it's not the same thing. And in fact, Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 11, he says this, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And here Paul uses this same analogy, this marriage analogy, to say, I betrothed you to Christ. Now, to really appreciate this, we just have to understand the Jewish wedding custom. It involved three steps. The first was when a young man who wanted to take a wife would go uh, to his prospective bride's house with his father, and there with her father they would negotiate a bride price. Now, immediately you've got a, a hurdle there in your mind because you say bride price. That sounds so strange that the guy is going to go buy his wife. You're going to buy your wife. Now, it's just a cultural thing. Get, get over that. It's just, it's just culture because you've got to look at it through the eyes of another culture. Uh, I remember in Africa talking to some, some believers about this, and they thought we here in America, specifically dads here in America, were very unloving toward their daughters because we don't sell them. We just give them away in marriage. So, again, it's just a matter of perspective. And, in fact, one of these young men came here to Bible school, uh, move, uh, to, uh, to Montana Bible College. And when he ba- got back to there and was going to buy his bride, several of us here in the church put money together so he could buy his bride. We helped him buy his bride because since he was a Christian, his future father-in-law thought, hey, he's going to have money. He's got contacts in the West. So the bride price was impossible for him. Now, it wasn't a big deal to us. I think you know, we each kicked in 20 bucks or something. But uh, you know, it, was all, it was impossible for him to buy his bride. But this, this, this is still in many cultures, and it was in the biblical culture. So they would negotiate a bride price, and the, the father of the bride would ask for a very high amount of money because his, bride, his daughter was very precious to him. And in fact, some historians say that the bride price in the first century would rival what you would pay for a new home. Very expensive. And so once that was agreed upon, they would pour cups of wine and then... They would all drink it, and then after the bridegroom would drink it, he would hold it out to his potential bride and say something to the effect, uh, I, I give you my life, will you take it? And then she was at the crossroads of a decision. She could say, no, I don't, or take the cup and drink it and basically seal the deal. That was betrothal. And, beloved, at that point, they were legally married. I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, that's they were engaged. No, they weren't engaged. They were married. Legally married, the only way out of it was divorce. They were legally married, but they didn't live together as husband and wife. They didn't consummate the marriage physically, because instead, the bridegroom would go back to his father's house and he would prepare a place for his bride. Now you're thinking, John 14, Jesus said, "I'm going to my father's house. prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you unto, unto myself." So he would go and prepare a place, and the bride never knew when he was going to finish, so she had to always be ready. Because on an unannounced day, he would return to claim his bride. And then they would go back to the place he had prepared. They would consummate the marriage physically. And then that would be followed by a wedding feast that was usually seven days. Well, the New Testament is filled with that imagery. All over the place, this imagery about our relationship to Christ. Jesus came to this earth to buy a bride, and the price was astronomical. It was his life and he bought a bride, and he paid the price, but we don't get to be with him, because he went back to the father's house, and he's preparing a place, but he's going to come. He says, I'll come again, and we don't know when, so we've got to be ready. He could come before we finish this service, or before the end of this night. We have to be ready, because when he comes, he's going to take us to the father's house, and that will be followed by a wedding feast that will be not seven days, but in my opinion, seven years. So, this imagery is throughout the New Testament, and and it refers to the bride of Christ, the church. So, all of that's a very long uh, answer to your question. Is the church the bride of Christ, as referenced in Ephesians 5, or does the bride include Old Testament saints, millennial saints, and tribulation saints? No, I do not believe it does. And in fact, the tribulation saints are really, if you studied, a continuation of what God did in the first 483 years of the prophecy in Daniel 9, which began at the uh, uh, decree of Artaxerxes to go back and for the Jews to rebuild. That started the clock. 483 years ended at the triumphal entry of jesus and it will resume in the future at the signing of a covenant and will go seven more years so those saints who are saved in that seven years are in a sense part of the 483 years uh, to, to include the 490 years of that magnanimous prophecy in daniel chapter 9 so again all that to say that i think the biblical evidence is clear that the church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's a unique entity from Israel. They are not to be equated, uh, because if you equate them, then basically what you're saying is all the promises God made to Israel are null and void. And if you're not comfortable with that, which a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who have that theology aren't comfortable saying it that way, they'll say, well, they were spiritualized into the church. Well, what difference does that make? Basically, they're still null and void to Israel, Because God made them to Israel. So if they are spiritualized into the church, then they mean nothing to Israel. So they're still null and void to Israel. So when it comes to this big distinction, as I was talking about earlier, between dispensational covenant slash reform theology, really, in in large measure, you could say the the main difference, and there are a lot of tentacles that reach out from, but the main difference is what is your perspective of God's dealings with Israel? In fact, as I said earlier, when people ask me, Brian, are you a dispensationalist? I will say, well, what do you mean by that? And I will answer your question. And they will say, well, you know, seven dispensations. And I often would say, well, let me tell you this. In this will answer your question. You can put me in whatever camp you want. I do not believe God is done with Israel. I don't think he's finished with Israel. The plans God made, the promises God made to Israel will be fulfilled literally. And that means a descendant of David in David's line, sitting on David's throne, not a heavenly throne, sitting on David's throne. David never had a throne in heaven. His throne was in Jerusalem. Well, he actually reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. David never had a throne in heaven. It was always on the earth. So if a a descendant of David is going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, you're talking millennial kingdom, literal millennial kingdom. All right. I know that was a long answer, but that's such an important theological issue. And Unfortunately, not a lot of clarity of thought, uh, in my opinion, uh, about the importance of it and the relevance of it. All right, next question says this. um, I grew up not being exposed to praying in a group. So I struggle with praying how I pray alone in a group. Can you relate to that? I'm sure many of you can. I know I can. You know, the way I pray when I'm alone, it's not like it's two different you know i'm just two different people but when it's just me before the lord my praying is different than i'm praying in a group i think most of us would probably acknowledge that my my praying alone is far more personal far more intimate i say things to the lord pers- privately i would never say in a group not that they're wrong but it's i you know it's same thing i say things to my wife in private i wouldn't want you to hear either so it's not like there's anything wrong with it it's just uh, yes, yeah, so I appreciate your honesty there, that you struggle with praying, how you pray alone in a group. This, I think, comes from fear of others. Um, in other words, again, we can all relate to that. You know, am I, are people going to judge me for the way I'm praying, or am I doing it right? You know, all of these things that can, can plague us. Um, can us, can we as sinners pray without fear of men in a group? How can I practice putting this fear to death? Boy, I really appreciate your transparency. It's a great question. And I guess uh, I would give a, just a couple comments. One is uh, you possibly, you may be, be being harder on yourself than you need to be. I, I don't know that for sure. I don't know your heart. But the reason I say that is because uh, praying in a group, even though all of us maybe in in some degree It's different than when we pray alone, Um, but praying in a group um, is something akin to or similar to speaking in public, and not everybody's comfortable speaking in public, right? That doesn't mean you're not a spiritual person. I mean, if you say, Brian, if you called me up here to the pulpit and asked me to say something, I think I would just keel over and die just because, you know, some people, in fact, you've seen the polls that in society, the number one fear of most people is speaking in public. Well, That doesn't mean you're an unspiritual person. It doesn't mean there's some sin in your heart. It doesn't, Well, in a similar way, praying in public, uh, some of this, I'm not saying all of it, but some of it's personality. There are some people that are very comfortable. They speak in public. They pray in groups. In others, they could never speak in public, and so praying in a group is, is hard for them. Don't, don't necessarily think that's a sign of lack of spirituality or whatever. However, if, as you say, you say, I think or I'm wondering if this comes from a fear of man, then how can uh, I practice putting this fear of man to death? Then one of the best ways that you can do it is just making yourself do it when it's awkward for you to do it. So if you really are identifying and think that's it, then I say the best thing you can do is sort of push through that and make yourself pray in groups when it's really hard for you and really awkward for you. If you determine it's just because my personality is more reserved, then I would say don't be so hard on yourself. That's just who you are. Your personality that's nothing there's nothing in the Bible that says you're more spiritual if you really are comfortable praying in public group or you know in groups. Nothing at all. But if it is fear of man, then fear of man is always something good for us to address uh, if if we're controlled by or impacted by fear of man. So if you really think that's it, then I would just say then keep being involved in uh, group prayer meetings because that will just force you to deal with that. Just keep forcing you to have to wrestle through that. And uh, the Christian life, Christian disciplines are not unlike many disciplines in life. It doesn't sound very spiritual to say, but for many disciplines, it's just a lot of practice. It really is. I mean, you know, um, some people, I often get asked, especially by younger men who are thinking about maybe God's calling them toward pastoral ministry, You know, uh, how do you get to the point where you can speak and study a passage? How do you know what to study? And I just say, you know, I'm not trying to at all minimize the role of the Holy Spirit or, you know, exclude the Holy Spirit. But the fact of the matter is some of it's just practice. It's It's just repetition. It's just doing it. And so you can, for that reason, by the way, just a little side note, when I first began pastoring and preaching now this is when our church was downtown eight west olive there and my wife and i lived right next door to the church i mean literally you could like open the side window and almost touch, touch the church building so on saturday nights every saturday night for like uh until we moved to our house out uh, out toward belgrade but when we were living there for the entire time every single saturday night i would go into the church building and i would preach my sermon to the pews to The empty pews, and the reason I did that is because the next morning when I was actually preaching it, I didn't want to be so nervous that I'm just looking down at my notes and I'm not making eye contact with anyone and I have no comfort. And you know, because I didn't want to be like you know, a robot or stiff, so I would preach to the pews every single Sunday or ni- uh, Saturday night for I don't know what it was five years or whatever because I recognized. That, sure, I did pray about it, and I pray about every one of my sermons, that the Holy Spirit would use them. But that doesn't, the, the, the Spirit's involvement in spiritual disciplines doesn't exclude our own practice. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 uses the term practice. He talks about practicing spiritual truth. So, again, in answer to your question, then just keep, uh, if you think that maybe it's fear of man, then just keep practicing. Keep Making yourself go where you're uncomfortable in in group prayer settings and just pray and force yourself through it and all the while be saying Lord help me to remind remember I'm talking to you I'm not praying to these people I'm praying to you so I just want to think about praying to you and not care what anyone else thinks because the fact of the matter is you know well they don't think anything badly about you but we all feel that awkwardness so very good question all right next question says this if Jesus could not be crucified without Roman approval, and that's true. That's why the if you look at the trials of Jesus, the Jewish leaders were pushing hard at Pilate, uh, at signing sort of the death you know the the death sentence because they couldn't do it. So if Jesus could not be crucified without Roman approval, how did the Jews get around this? When they stoned Stephen? It's an excellent question. And I think the simple answer is we know this more from extra biblical history than even in the Bible, but we can see glimpses of it in the Bible. There was so much tension between the Romans and the Jews in Israel that unless the Romans had to make an issue out of something, they just turned a blind eye. They just would let the Jews do whatever. But there was a limit. They weren't going to just let them do anything. But, you know, in the case of Stephen, they probably viewed it this way. Look, it's a group of Jews wrangling over a bunch of words. That's what they do all the time as Jews. And, of course, this is the attitude of the Romans. They just wrangle over words and laws and all of that nonsense. And they got all upset with each other, and they ended up stoning this guy. Well, it's just Jews killing another Jew. Maybe it's just another headache that's been removed from us. That's probably their attitude. So they just turned a blind eye to it, let them do it. And uh, unless it was going to impact, you know, society on a larger level and create consternation, uh, the Romans just, they wouldn't come down on the Jews unless they knew there was something at stake as far as peace in society, etc. All right, next question is uh, Luke 16. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16. And, boy, this is a question, this is a passage, actually, that has plagued a lot of people a lot of times. And you'll see why um, as we read through it. So let's just read through it, and then I'll get the question. So verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called them and said, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward.'" So he knows his time is up, by the way. That's important to notice. He knows his time is up. It's limited. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I resolve what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master, now the master finds out about what this steward had done. He basically, you know, cheated him, the master, out of this other because he's trying to get in good with all these people who owe the master. Don't say a hundred, say 50, say 80, whatever. Uh, So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the son, now that's where sort of the parable ends, and then Jesus makes the comment, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon or money, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And then there, you can go on and read the rest of it. So here's the question. Why in verse 8 is he commended? That's a very good question. Now please hear this. He is not Commended for his dishonesty. In fact, right here in this uh, in this story, he is called unjust. He is called an unjust steward. In fact, to make this story more shocking, Jesus purposely did this. Everybody in it was unrighteous. Everyone in the whole story. But this steward was unjust. He had no right to just say, you owe my master a hundred. Cross it out and say 50. You owe my master 100. Cross it out and say 80. So he was not commended for his dishonesty. He was commended for his shrewdness. And then the question, why in verse 9 does he say, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth? So that will answer the question. What is the point of this parable that Jesus tells? The point is this, that the sons of this generation, that is, unbelievers, are often wiser more shrewd with their money than believers they in this case this guy used his money to think about the future hey man i'm going to get kicked out i got to do something and basically the point that jesus is making is we as sons of light should think about how to use our money for the future and of course not merely like the future like retirement but eternity and so that's why Jesus gives the application, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous man. And that is, use your money, use your money for eternity. Let me just make that as a, you know, a paraphrase. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Now, we don't like this term shrewd. Uh, we kind of has negative connotations. But Jesus, even when he sent his disciples out in Matthew 10, said be, most of our translations say be wise as serpents, as gentle as doves. Listen, gang, that's the word shrewd. Be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. Now, dishonesty is wrong. Shrewdness is not. Jesus here was commending, he was commending to us the importance of thinking through how we use our money in people's lives for eternity. That's the basic point of the parable. And he says, unbelievers give more thought to how to use their money for the future than believers do about the future and namely eternity. All right, last question says this. What is a biblical example of tithing? Should we be giving so that we are confining ourselves to a tighter budget? I am challenged because I know I need to support the church, but I don't know where to start. Well, again, let me kind of get back up and give you just a big picture. Um, In the Old Testament, there were two types of giving. Required giving, free will giving required giving was a tie that you had to pay it it wasn't ten percent as most christians believe it was actually ten percent twice a year and then a third of a ten percent which would be another three and a third so it was 23 and a third percent that the people of israel had to give if you didn't give it you were robbing god because you lived in a theocracy and you had to give it so the priesthood could be supported it was required giving or let me give you another term it was tax it was the tax to live in israel In addition, the people were encouraged, exhorted to give from their hearts, to give graciously, generously to the Lord. That's Old Testament giving. In the New Testament, guess what? It's the same way. We have required giving. You know what that is? Tax. Jesus said, pay your taxes. Paul said, pay your taxes. Peter said, pay your taxes. We have to give that... To live in our country. And interestingly, you think about 23 and a third percent in the Old Testament. I mean, what is the tax rate here when you add up all your taxes? I don't know. It's probably pretty close to that. But in addition to that, when we are exhorted to give in the New Testament, listen, a percentage is never prescribed. Never. Instead, if you look at giving in the New Testament, here are the terms you will see. Give generously, give sparingly, give sacrificially, give regularly, give proportionately. You look at giving in the New Testament, and we are taught to give, and we are taught to to give. Again, those are the terms that Paul don't Give not begrudgingly. I remember sitting in a Sunday school class one time. This was years ago. He wasn't here at our church. We are sitting in a Sunday school class with my wife. And the Sunday school teacher said, Listen, some of you are not giving 10% to God. You're only giving 9%. And God is not going to bless you if you don't give 10%. And my wife was holding my hand down so that I couldn't raise it up to say, You know what? I know that God would much rather you give 9% willingly than 10% grudgingly. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, So we are exhorted. When it comes to giving, we are exhorted to give. Again, these are biblical terms. Regularly, systematically, weekly, uh, generously, um, not begrudgingly, joyfully. Those are the terms that are used. So how should we teach God's people to give? Do we say, here's the percentage you have to give to be pleasing to God? No. Here's what you say to God's people. This is between you and the Lord. But remember, God wants you to give joyfully. He wants you to give generously. He wants you to give regularly. He wants you to give systematically. He, those are the terms the New Testament uses. So as far as your question, what is the biblical example of tithing? I wouldn't even go there. I would just say, you know, now listen, a lot of Christians use 10%. And that's great. Just as long as you understand, that's just between you and the Lord. You're not required to give that, but you're to determine between the Lord... You and the Lord, what you should give. And I know a lot of Christians, that's sort of the starting point for that. My wife and I, when we got married, we said, okay, we'll start at 10%. Everything the Lord blesses us with, that's just off the top. We'll just give 10%. That's where we started, and we just keep evaluating that through the years to see how the Lord wants us to give. Um, But there's nothing in the New Testament that prescribes a percentage. Instead, you give those ways that are mentioned. And Scripture says because God loves a cheerful giver, giver. And um, so that is the way you give. Sacrificially, willingly, joyfully, regularly, systematically, and then that's between you and the Lord. All right, let's stand as we close. Father, thank you for our time together, uh, not only this evening, but this day. Thank you for the privilege of meeting with your people, for the opportunity just to delve into your word and Uh, to wrestle with it, chew on it, and thank you for the questions that were turned in tonight representing just, uh, uh, I'm convinced, hearts that want to know and understand and want to please you. And so, Father, thank you just for a chance to at least touch on some of these very important subjects. Continue to give us, grant us uh, diligence in your word, understanding of it, uh, but not just mentally, uh, but uh, grant us a heart that longs to obey. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.